This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Well, Eli, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, great, great to be on here. Well, uh, I thought maybe what we should do is what people know from the headlines and whatever, that we, they know we're going to be talking about SpaceX and the economics of space exploration and p- possibly colonization more broadly. But before we dive into that, can you just give a little bit of your own background as to, you know, how, do you, how did you get into this area? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm trained as an economist. I got a PhD at George Mason University and, and uh, worked at the Mercatus Center for several years uh, in the technology policy program as the director of that program. And, you know, got really interested in sort of non-digital technologies around 2014 or so um, and sort of as, as part of that, sort of diving into things like uh, aerospace generally uh, and space in, in particular. Um, I, I left Mercatus uh, in 2017 to go in-house at a, at a startup uh, called Boom that um, that was building a supersonic airplane. So I was head of global policy for them and, and worked there for uh, almost three years. Um, and now I'm at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, where I work on uh, sort of drivers of uh, economic growth and, and technology, technology and innovation, and uh, you know, space is, is is one of those areas as well. Oh, okay, so the the company was called Boom because of a sonic boom. Is that why? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, because at first I thought you were going to say like a building rockets, and I was like, I don't know that I would want to work for a company building no, rockets called no. Boom. <laughs> no, okay, no, so no, the no. sonic boom makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah it's, it's just an adjacent industry. Yeah. I got you. I got you. Okay. So um, why don't we, you know, the the news hook, of course, is the recent um, launch. And so let me just, for the listeners who had the same reaction I did, I was a bit surprised. I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. I log into Twitter as I'm wont to do, you know, whenever there's work that needs to be done, I first go check Twitter. And then, um, and I saw all these people congratulating, you know, Elon and SpaceX or whatever for the the launch where it wasn't until several minutes of me looking around at the story that I realized it exploded. And at first I thought that was funny. And then people, they were even saying things like, you know, the SpaceX is calling this a successful failure or something. I mean, and I, and I was just chuckling to myself cause I knew like the libertarian types who were congratulating them. If, if a NASA project had had the exact same thing and we're calling it a successful failure, they would have mocked it mercilessly. They said, Oh yeah, like mostly peaceful riots. Ha ha. So can you, but then some people did send me, you know, articles and analyses saying, no, Bob, it's not a contradiction. Like they, there really is a logic to SpaceX's model here. It's it's sort you know, like a a fail quickly kind of thing, whereas that's not what NASA does. So can you just speak to that just a little bit for the people who also thought that was kind of humorous? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I I would clarify. So this was a, a, a test flight. But uh, Starship is a part of a NASA program, right? So it's part of the Artemis missions. It is a piece. It's going to serve, the upper stage is going to serve as the human landing system uh, for the Artemis program. So this is related to, to what NASA uh, would, uh, you know, is doing. Um, but, but yeah, uh, SpaceX takes a different uh, philosophy than a lot of legacy aerospace companies do with regard to testing and development. So, you know, if you look at um, the traditional way of procuring a rocket right, by, by an agency like NASA is to do a cost plus contract, uh, which with, with a major prime contractor, 
like Boeing or Lockheed Martin. Um, and then NASA owns the rocket, right? They own the design. They, they, um, it is, it is their, it is their product. And, and the incentives under that system are to design it to the nth degree, like do perfect design, fly it once and have it go, you know, try to have it go flawlessly. Um, it doesn't always work that way, but, but that, that's the, that's what, sort of the aerospace industry has been geared around for, for many decades. And SpaceX comes along and says, well, we want to own the rocket. Like we want to own, like we want this, we want to operate this commercially. And, um, and we want to, you know, sell service to the, to the government. And there have been, uh, you know, contracts and subsidies along the way. Um, and, you know, their, their model is, you know, let's let, let's more of an iterative rather than a linear design process so so they're gonna um they're gonna launch and it's not gonna go perfectly on especially on the early test flights and then uh they're gonna learn something they're gonna figure it out and then they're gonna change change some things and launch again and do better and just increase the cycle uh time you know between between launches and get better and better and then uh you know sort of the first part of the launch just start, starts going better and you know maybe testing some things on the on the latter part of the launches. So, for example, on the Falcon Nine rocket, which is the workhorse rocket that SpaceX has, like, so it's not not their next generation one, their current generation one. Um, they were launching payloads into space with paying customers, and then they were trying to land the boosters right after. Mm -hmm. So so they so they they launched the rocket. The the payload would separate from the booster, uh, or the second stage would separate from the booster, and they would try to then take advantage of the fact that they had launched a booster already to try to try to launch it. And so then they, they failed a, a, a huge number of times trying to land the booster before they got it. And now they have a partially reusable rocket in the Falcon 9 that has made their costs so much lower than anybody else that could be considered a competitor that they basically own that sort of medium lift uh, commercial payload uh, uh, market and, and most of the government. Uh, market as well. So, well, well, can I yeah, can I jump in? really well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so that so thank you for that, and 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 thanks for the clarification that you're saying technically what we just saw is related to a NASA program, so it's not like they're completely distinct. Um, that's partly why I was so surprised, is because you're right. I had seen footage. I don't at this point was it years ago where they did successfully land the thing. And it looked it looked like they were playing a video in reverse, like it, it yeah. looked too good too good yeah. to be true. And then, but people are saying, "No, that's that's a legit video," and so that's why yeah. I was so surprised. Then with this one, when people were congratulating it, and then to to learn, oh no, that thing blew up. And so, what what is the di what's the difference between you know, in other words, they had that last one down so precisely that they could not only not have it blow up but have it come back and land. And now this one, so what do do you know about like you know what are some what's of the, the differences? Difference? Yeah, sure. So, um, so there's a number of differences. So, so one is the, well, so one is it's just a brand new rocket, right? Any mm -hmm. any new system, you're going to have some bugs to mm -hmm. to work out. And they have a lot of experience with the Falcon Nine, and they've applied some of those learnings to the Starship program, but um, but it's just a new system. Uh, the other major difference is that uh, Starship is a much much bigger <laughs> rocket. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Uh, I think it, I think it's basically the biggest rocket ever made. Uh, you know, it, it, up there with the, the Saturn V, which launched the the uh, Apollo missions, um, and and you know, you're, and it's 
a new uh, new engines are much bigger. And I think more more generally, like like a way to think about like rockets are just harder than a lot of other things that we're used to. Um, so if you compare it to like say a new plane, mm-hmm. right? If you're if you're testing a new plane. Um, what they do to test a new plane is they uh, do what's called envelope expansion. So they so they take the airplane, they set it out on the runway. Looks like it's standing up. Okay, good. Then they'll roll it down the runway, right? They'll have a, a, just a taxi test where they roll it down the runway. Uh, any problems there? No? Okay. Then now we're going to, you know, um, make it go a little faster, right? And they, they increase the speed. And then we're going to have it, like, lift off and then touch down, right, really quickly, right? And so they do – they they gradually expand the envelope. With a rocket, you can't do that. It's either you fly or you or you don't, right? And so, so mm. you basically light all the engines and let it go, and that's um, that's how you test these things. And so, it's uh, you know, Elon always says excitement guaranteed, you know, one way or the other. So, um, mm. so, so, and that that's I think part of why it's it's so challenging. Okay, so it's I mean, obviously the the basic engineering and so forth they know that, but the, there is a difference between like one. You know, a rocket of a certain size, and then to say, well, what if we just slapped on five times as many engines under there? Yeah, it would just, they, you know, like that. It's, it's just, not it's, clear what changes. It's so a that's huge they, number. Yeah. It's a huge number of engines on the bottom that I don't think any other rocket has ever had as many engines. Okay. Do, do you know? If you don't know, it's fine. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but because I've seen people saying that they may have just like self destructed it, like once they knew that the number of engines were failing. They didn't want it to like hit something. So they just, they blew it up intentionally to not hurt anything. It, you know? it, it's possible. It's possible. Uh, I, I, I don't know one way or the other. Every rocket that launches has to have a flight termination system on board, which is a, mm-hmm. you know, like a little, like a, a small explosive really that they can remotely operate that, um, that just pierces the side of the rocket and makes the whole thing blow up. Um, you know, given the, the stresses of flight, we'll, we'll take care of the rest. And so, they, so they do have a system on board for that. I don't, I don't know that that was what happened here or not, um, but, but that is a possibility. Okay. So can I, I think you said it already, but let me just reiterate to make sure I understand because the, the articles that made me less like cynical or whatever, when I was at first saying, what do you mean it was a successful failure? Come on. And they were saying that like, in other words, nobody thought this thing was going to, they weren't sure how far it was going to get and that the, the, uh, the idea is they had a bunch of, you know, telemetry and whatnot that they learned from this. They had all kinds of, you know, they have a lot of data now from a real world and that, yeah, in the simulators and the computers and stuff, you can do all you want, but until you go out and actually like the thing and see what happens, you're not going to know because like you said, there's all these different interacting variables and it's a complex system. So, and so they, the, their model was we're going to just keep going and, and trying and, and learning from these things knowing full well that the first few attempts aren't going to be successful, but that's the quickest way to actually get to a successful working uh, design. Is, is that basically right? That, that's right. And actually, they've been testing of versions of, of Starship for years now, right? And they started with just, um, they actually started with a, a very, uh, like, uh, a shorter version of the, just the second stage, right? Just the, the, the actual vehicle, the Starship vehicle. And, and it was called... Um, Oh gosh, Starhopper maybe. Uh, anyway, they they it was just like a tiny like little water tower size thing, and they and they basically just translated. It. They 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 worked on just getting it off the ground, moving it over, and then landing it. Um, 
And once they sort of perfected that, then they moved on to like the full size like Starship vehicle. And so they did some tests, um, a series of, of tests again, like same th- sort of thing. The first several failed, where they tried to launch this thing, um, you know, not to orbit. They couldn't. They couldn't reach orbit with a single stage, probably. Um, but then, but to altitude, and then they practiced like sort of the landing maneuver for the vehicle that, that might have, you know, people or, or cargo on it at some point. And so, and, and they eventually got to the point where they landed that thing. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so what was unique about this test was this is the first orbital test that used, you know, not only the vehicle on top, but the, the booster on the bottom. And so, um, so, so yes, this is extremely consistent with like the entire test program. This is not like spin that that people right. have, have put on it. it. This is this has been consistent with you know how they how they, how they have tested this thing. Okay, um, if we could pull back a little bit and and talk. Um, so you, you had sent me some of your your work on in these topics, um, and can you speak? You anticipated a little bit already with what you've said, but just the uh, the different like how NASA used to award contracts and then why. Um, you know, they can, they came up with a way that they can harness like the innovation and speed of a startup, but yet still yeah. like, accomplish what they want. Yeah. It's it, so this resulted from, uh, sort of essentially the, the retirement of the space shuttle. Right. So, so, um, you know, even as early as say 2000 or so, like it was clear that like the space shuttle was not going to work forever. Um, and so NASA needed a, a replacement to take, especially to take, cargo and, and eventually like crew to the international space station. So we, we have this space station, which is itself like a $150 billion structure, right? And the most expensive thing we've ever built as a species uh, in, in, in space. And, um, and, and to get people to and from, you need a vehicle, right? And, and uh, sort of NASA's main vehicle was going offline, this, the space shuttle. And so they, they needed a new, a new, um, a new system and they didn't have a lot of money, right? And then, and so they awarded something to somebody, and, and there were some lawsuits, including by SpaceX. But eventually, they came up with this system where they were going to do a. Uh, they were like, we don't have a lot of money, so what we'll do is we'll we'll do a, a fixed price contract where the contractor owns the vehicle afterwards, like, we, and we'll just pay for the service of of using it. Um, it's going to be milestone based, so you hit your milestones, you get a, you get a check rather than, um, you know, all, all the money at once or, or just guaranteed that, that um, you pay. And then, and then the other thing is it's going to be based on, like, we're not going to design the thing because NASA, when NASA gets involved in design, they always want more and more safety. And so they just jack up the, the sort of the safety um, parameters um, and, and add, add, a, add a lot of analysis and costs. Uh, and so they were like, you know, it's got to meet, sort of these, these goals, we're going to set up the goals that we're going to meet with the program and not give you requirements, if that makes sense. So, so goals versus requirements is, is sort of the third element. Um, and that is the system that uh, sort of funded the, the Falcon 9's uh, development program. Um, and, and that's why, you know, that we're the, the a, why, why SpaceX was able to succeed, they probably would not have succeeded without that program. It's, you know, why uh, the U.S. is the clear leader in space today, which, you know, like, we'd be probably falling behind uh, if, if had, had it not been for this. And, um, 
and and it's why you know spacex is launching you know more more mass to orbit than any other entity on the planet including you know the chinese government mm -hmm. so um so spacex by itself is is just such a huge player you know because of this there were other um there was another winner of the contract there's another winner of the contract who failed to to meet a milestone early on, and so they, their contract got canceled. So NASA did the right thing there, and then they awarded another one, um, uh, and, and and that got to fruition and it has delivered cargo to the the ISS. Um, and then they realized that this model worked really well. They got so much more value for the money that they were doing it, and so NASA's um, you know, sort of. Uh, method of operation now is use it use it on everything. So the, so they um, so they did this uh, sort of similar contract again with commercial crew, which are taking humans instead of cargo to the ISS. Um, they have done it now with the human landing system for the the Artemis mission. So so to go to the moon it, it, again, like the the lander that SpaceX is developing is under a similar style contract, um, and and they've done it for um, there's been some space station type uh, contracts as well that this is this is like they've, they've hit on something that works um, and and they want to use it every chance they get the only time they don't use it is when congress uh doesn't want them to use it right so so a lot of times congress has um put their thumb on the scales and appropriated you know much more money to a you know cost plus program that is is written in such a way that it's a foregone conclusion which company We'll get it. So, so that's what's happened um, with NASA's uh, other big rocket, the, the Space Launch System, which is also playing a role in the in the Artemis missions to, to the Moon. Okay, so I'm just curious, like, what the if you don't know, it's fine. But like, is it that NASA would say we want some company to deliver, you know, to hit this milestone, and then different companies bid and they go with the low bidder, or is it they they say what the price tag is and then they look at respondents yeah. and say, yeah, we'd be willing to do that. I mean, so the, so the way this has worked is that NASA will say, you know, this is how much, this is the pool of money we have. These are the requirements we have. Um, we're, we'll, we're soliciting bids for, um, for this, you know, service or, or like this, the, this development project, I guess I, I should say. And then, um, and then companies, they do bid. It's not necessarily that they will take the low bidder every time. Uh, they they do assess the bids on the basis of you know management and sort of track record and ability to deliver, um, uh, but yeah, it, it has been pretty competitive. And so with the with the human landing system contract, uh, you know uh, uh, that was has been very contentious because SpaceX came in with a low bid and with a very creative solution to right, to use the upper stage of the rocket as the lander. That you know that doesn't look like the the moon lander you saw from Apollo, right, or from the Apollo program, right? It, which is like more of a squat buggy type thing, um, not not the not the rover that was on the moon, but the the actual thing that came down uh, and 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 landed. Um, and and you had a much more traditional program led by Blue Origin, and they sort of Blue Origin, which you know Jeff Bezos's company, um, they partnered with a bunch of other prime. Uh, contractors. So it was a Blue Origin led, but like supported by uh, a bunch of other American contractors. They called it the national team. And they put out a bid um, that that was higher cost. Um, and, and you know, NASA was like, they, they were very sure that they were going to win initially. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it did, did not work out that way. NASA was like, well, we, we have a, a solution here that would work from SpaceX that would, is actually lower cost. And so mm-hmm. we'll take that one. Okay. Yeah. So it, I guess just for the big picture for the listeners. So the traditional model is they would just pick one company, one you know contractor. It's, it's sort of like the stereotype of like how a defense contract would work. And you're going to develop this thing. And then if the contractor keeps coming back years into it, when you've already spent hundreds of millions of dollars, this is, oh, we're behind. We need a little bit more money. This is taken, you know, or we came up with this new feature. Wouldn't you want us to, to do this too? As we get into that. And then at that point, you're already 300 million in, in four years or whatever. You're not just going to say, no, cut them off and then start from scratch with somebody else that, and from Congress's point of view, that's money flowing to their constituents. And, you know, they've got, some big contractor located in their state providing jobs and whatever. It's kind of a win-win all around, except for the taxpayer. That, that, yeah, that, that's right. Um, so, so the uh, so the the distinction I would make is like who owns the product at mm-hmm. the end, right? So, so this is so these are these are development programs. So they're subsidizing development of a of a private market they want to exist, basically. Um, so that's that's the the sort of the newer approach. The traditional approach is. We want to own a rocket that can do this, um, and we're going to hire someone to design and build it for us. But we might change our mind about all kinds of specifications as we go, um, and so we have to we have to pay the contract. You know, for, no contractor is going to take a fixed price contract where the customer can change things, at, you know, on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so with a uh, government owned vehicle or you know you 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 definitely probably you probably have to do a cost plus program um so at the end of that end of so unlike the space launch system which is like the other big rocket that's under development right now like the government it's the government's uh rocket like you know boeing and and a, a bunch of other contractors have pieces of it um but it's ultimately the government owns it and there is no commercial market for it uh, part in part because it's it's um too expensive um but you know it just wasn't designed with that in mind at all and and so the only way you get a contractor to do that is if you offer to to say we'll pay your costs plus a little extra for you know uh, that you can take as profit um and then and then there's the issue of like these contracts they're all all very complex and they have like award fees for like good performance and so it is it's really uh, shocking how the performance you know you could have a rocket that's over budget and behind schedule and the contractor is like making you know scoring like 95 percent on their performance bonus and getting getting you know a lot of extra money on top mm-hmm. well i mean of course you know as economists we can see institutionally part of the issue is that you know congress they don't the incentives aren't there if, if if Congress gets the same shuttle program but saves a billion dollars, it's not that Congress's pay goes up by a billion, you, you know, that they're not like a private company where that's right. money to them. Like to them, actually, yes. the more money f- being spent and flowing to their, you know, districts or whatever is maybe the metric of success. So that, I guess that's part of the reason that this this kind of stuff happens. Absolutely. The, the, you know, the key senators um, on, on this, on, you know, so on the space launch system program, for example, were from Florida, from Texas, from, you know, from other states that had big chunks, Alabama, you know, big chunks of the 
of the program were based out of those states. And, and so some people called it the Senate launch system instead of the space launch system. It was, it was you know, very, very much driven by Congress. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's a rocket rocket to nowhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, can we maybe take a, a few minutes then and just speak, you know, more broadly about the economics of this? So, I mean, w- would this have been possible in the 80s? If they had said to private companies, you can own the space shuttle, or was it that, well, no, legally, they wouldn't have been able to do anything with it, you know, or, you know, has, has like the, the law changed to allow for private property rights in space or, you know, that kind of thing? That's it. Well, it's a great question. Uh, I think in terms of like the contracting innovations, I don't think there's anything that is stopping what had, what ever has stopped um, NASA from doing this. So, so government agencies are bound by procurement rules. Uh, and so, so, you know, if you're doing, you know, we want to want to at least like make some effort to, to prevent, you know, graft and bribes and, and so on. So there, there's pretty extensive contracting rules um, that, you know, all agencies have to abide by. Uh, NASA has always had since its inception in uh, 1958, um, other transactions authority. So, so these are called uh, space act agreements, and and the space act agreements, you know, provided that you're not literally doing a, a conventional procurement and just calling it a space act agreement to to get around the, the rules, they have a lot of flexibility, and so this other this other transactions authority is kind of what makes NASA able to do this, and they they've had that authority since since their inception as an agency, so there's nothing new um, there. I think we are at a maybe maybe uh you could argue we're at a point now where like uh, the sort of be, being able to like with a relatively small company like do interesting things in space with with computers and with um you know design tool better design tools like you can have a pretty lean team that put together uh an interesting vehicle right mm-hmm. and so maybe something like that makes it more attractive for the for the private market but there's nothing obvious to me that suggests like we couldn't have done this uh, before. So, so yeah, it's a, a, a fantastic question. Oh, okay. And then, but I guess then the flip side is, and, and this might not be your areas, uh, but do you know, like, have, have they codified um, like property rights beyond earth more uh, now? Um, so the answer is sort of. Um, so there is an outer space treaty uh, that that U.S. is a signatory to, and it says that there is no. Um, I forget I forget the exact phrasing, but there's there's something in there that suggests like, you know, the U.S. can't go and like claim put plant a flag on the moon and like claim ownership of the moon, right? Mm-hmm. So so that that's in there. Um, what Congress has done uh, more recently is they've interpreted it the treaty to to mean that. Um, that if you were to go into space and, um, and and sort of find an asteroid and start mining it, you are entitled to the proceeds of that mining operation, right? So so they've so they've they've clarified that um, nothing in the outer space treaty like prevents that. So so I, I think that that for um, for all practical purposes, other than like sort of fast land holding, right? Like like you have property rights in space or so stuff that you. Uh, that you send up and and use and um, and the resources that you acquire while you're there, They're, those are yours. So so that's that's clear. I don't think that that's what has driven 
uh, SpaceX so much. Um, still, the vast majority of space revenue is satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's just the vast majority of like, wh- you know, where the money where the money goes. Um, but I think that is hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully the future is you know establishing settlements in in space and sort of you know appropriating you know in situ resources, right? Like you have to you have to be able to lay off the land to some extent and and own it, get, be able to make use of the resources that you find there. And I think that, I think under the U S legal framework, I think that that's, that's, um, acceptable. The other quirk here is that, um, under the outer space treaty, anything that is launched is under the supervision of the launching state. So, so anything, any, you know, any, any, um, private company that launches from the U S or U S person or whatever, like the U S has, um, both, uh, jurisdiction and responsibility for it. So if, if, if you're a bad actor and you cause problems to somebody else, you know, to China's spaceship, like the U.S. is responsible. So, so there's a there's an incentive to, um, you know, tamp down on maybe the craziest and most dangerous things that people could do in space. I guess ranging from like deliberately putting up like a killer satellite that just starts taking out other people's things versus just something that the orbit wasn't right and it starts knocking stuff. Sure. Yeah, I think space careless. debris is mm-hmm. space debris is a concern, right? So if you if you put something up in orbit that was designed to break apart or something like that into a million pieces that are all moving, you know, uh, like Mach twenty five is like orbital speed. Um, that that that's um, that that's dangerous. So um, so that's not allowed. Okay. Okay. I guess partly why I'm answer, asking these questions is because, as you can probably imagine, a lot of the listeners of this podcast, I know, are going to be very free market oriented. And they're going to say, well, in a perfect world, there, you know, we wouldn't need a government space program. It would just have all have been private. And so I think my gut tells me it would not have been a, an efficient use of resources to go plant a flag, a flag on the moon in the late 60s, given the realities and whatever. But I do think you know, setting up telecom satellites and whatnot in the eighties would have made sense commercially. Um, I'm just wondering what, what, what's your gut feel on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I obviously come, I come from a libertarian tradition as well. I've gotten less dogmatic about it uh, over the years and it really is hard to disentangle in space, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's very, um, the, the, the satellites that we have today, uh, they probably wouldn't have been able to launch without sort of the investments that, that the U S government made, you know, beginning in the 1950s. Um, and, and without, you know, without those investments, like you just, you just wouldn't have it. I think about something like uh, the GPS system, right? This is a piece of space that all of us use every day now. Right. And th- those are military systems, the, the global positioning satellites and wouldn't have happened um, without government investment. Um, it, it, the, the sort of the spillover benefits of doing stuff in space, uh, I think are, are quite compelling. So uh, one, I think one, one challenge that I, I, I see as we, um, as I work on innovation and innovation policy is that we are pretty comfortable down here on earth, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. nothing to really motivate us to um to get out of our complacency right and and in space there is um there's constant danger there's uh you know it's, it, you're you're operating under 
severe, severe constraints and risk. And, um, and I think that sort of just the, that sort of environment of not, not being complacent, um, has driven, you know, quite a lot of, um, a, a lot of innovation over the years, uh, you know, space, um, space was the initial market for solar panels and, you know, like, which are now like, had, thanks a lot in part, uh, you know, significantly to private sector innovation now have gotten so cheap that, you know, they're going to enable like people to live off grid and, you know, and, you know, and so on. So, so there's, there's all kinds of spillover benefits that, uh, that occur um, and from, from investment in space. And so, it, you know, it's hard for me to, um, to take a dogmatic libertarian position here. I think, it, I think it is valuable to have that investment and it is investment. I think that a lot of times that the private sector probably wouldn't uh, lead. I think that the, the margin that we should be pushing on is more, well, can we at least do it well? Can, can we, you know, can we make sure that we have, you know, more, more Falcon nines and fewer space launch systems, right. And, and, and sort of have the, the more successful contracting system that's, you know, more than an order of magnitude, more effective mm -hmm. and, and sort of having, you know, taking a, a an approach here of, um, you know, let, let, yeah, let, let's, uh, you know, let's acknowledge, of course, we're, we're taking money from the taxpayer. But um, but let's let's try to let's try to try to spend it well and and get as much as we can out of it and um, and and, and that there's obviously a million challenges with that as you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, and, and by the way, so folks listening, I'll link to some of Eli's papers. You know, if you go to the show notes for this episode, um, you know, and you can see him make the case, and 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 I think you did make a compelling case, Eli, that you know, given that taxpayer dollars are going to be used to fund these sorts of things. There's smarter and dumber ways of doing it. And, and you certainly, you know, have a good case for your preferred approach. So I, I guess just, you know, again, just the, the, the fundamentals of it. Um, you know, one issue would be like, are there constraints? In other words, right now, it's not that you could say, oh, we could get rid of the Department of Defense and just let the private sector develop right. things because it'd be illegal. You know, right. you know, so whether that was a good idea or not, that wouldn't work given the other things the state does, you know, to say well, if we catch anybody with, you know, more than this kind of a rifle, we're going to put you in jail. And then yeah. so there's but are, are you saying like right now, are there any legal roadblocks to a private company just going to venture capitalists to put a base on the moon and eventually in Mars? Or are there actually legal hurdles that it would kind of have to be in conjunction with governments? I, th I think they're, you know, fairly, th there's always, there's always legal obstacles. So, but, but I think they're fairly con contained and minimal mm. in the case of innovating in space. So, you know, you need a launch license, right? Uh, that's an FAA led process to, you know, approve you to, to launch. Um, it does, you know, you need approval from the state department, right? Among other things so they're going to do a payload review to make sure like what you're sending to space again, right, because the right. U S government is responsible under this treaty. Yep, yep. Um, so, so they're, they're going to make sure that, that what you're sending to space is okay. Um, but I think, uh, you know, if, if, a private company or a wealthy a private American company or a American individual was like, I'm going to spend, you know, I have this many billion dollars and I'm going to spend it all building a, a moon base. I think the, you know, for the most part, the policy environment would be favorable. 
um, there, there might be, you might get a little opposite, a little embarrassment from uh, NASA feeling like they've been shown up, but mm -hmm. aside, the, but they're not a regulatory agency anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that parts of NASA would think it was great and would want to cooperate and, uh, and assist. So it, it is, um, I think there's very, you know, it's f fairly reasonable and uh, non, non deal breaky, uh, you know, sort of regulations on, right. on, on this stuff. So then I guess, um, just as an, an economist, to justify the existence of government funding for these things, like, is there some kind of market failure argument that the private sector is not going to fully capture all the benefits and that's why they wouldn't adequately fund it and that's why there's at least a, a prima facie case for taking the um, money? Like, the public wants to fund it and wants there to be a moon base and are willing to spend however many billion to do it, but they couldn't do it through private channels for various yeah. reasons. Yeah. I would, I would say, I would say it's a, it's a few things. So it's, one is this, the spillover benefits of, you know, inventions made along the way and so on. I think another one is just sort of the, the science that we've learned uh, from going to space is, is itself like, you know, it's not a commercial benefit, but uh, you know, right for, for better or worse, the, the U S uh, government spends money, uh, you know, subsidizing science and, and basic research and stuff. And, and, and we have learned a ton from the, from, you know, the different aspects of, of sort of the space program from, from, you know, even telescopes on earth that have been, have been funded by, uh, by governments as well as space telescopes and, and experiments on the international space station. Um, I think that the other thing though, is that this is an area where there are pieces of the puzzle that, it only works if some of the pieces are already in place, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you kind of, and it's maybe more than one actor can do. And so I think that you can look at the sort of the, the new wave of, of NASA contracting as them recognizing, you know, we don't want to control all, we don't want to own, we don't want to operate our own vehicles, right? Like we don't want to own and operate vehicles. We want to buy services on the market. Markets are great, right? The problem is that, like the market that we want doesn't exist. And so we are going to subsidize the creation of the market that mm -hmm. doesn't exist yet uh, and be the tentpole customer. But ideally we are not the only customer, right? They don't want to be the only customer in the end. And so, um, and, and, and so they, so I think it's sort of like an enlightened view that the service you're going to get is better if you're not the only customer in the end. Right. right. And, 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 um, and so they're they're kind of stepping in with you know, and, and these new style contracts like fairly modest amounts of money relative to what they were spending before, and getting a lot of bang for the buck out of it, and and you know, cre creating markets that I think will um, will snowball and and eventually become self sustaining. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just to clarify for listeners, philosophically, I'm against state intervention, but I'm, you know, I mean, I'm here just to, to get gain from sure. your, your yeah. expertise on this. So I'm not here to, to, you know, we're not having a debate. I'm just curious your view. Correct. So yeah. with, the, with the time we have left, can you, um, can you speak a bit to, cause I'm, you know, everybody, oh, the Artemis program going to the moon. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you, do you know yeah. some of the particulars? Like I had seen earlier timetables. Do you know, like right now what the status of that is and what they're saying the reasonable uh, milestones would be? It's uh, it's going to it's going to be a terrible boondoggle. Uh, actually, um, I think the I'm hearing no earlier than 2027 for boots on the moon at this point. 
Okay. Um, so, so quite. It is that pushed back from. That's original? yeah. So it was initially. Well, it's been pushed back many times, but uh, yeah, I think uh, you know when when uh, it was originally announced, it was going to be. I think you know basically the Trump administration wanted to do it during their first term, right? Okay. So so it was going to be like twenty twenty four. Um, but the, I mean, the design of the program is, is kind of insane. Um, so, so like the, sort of the architecture of the mission was they were going to have this really big expensive rocket that nobody wants except for the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. And they're going to put humans on the, and a capsule on the top of it and launch that. Uh, and then the cap, so the capsule would get to the moon and orbit the moon. And then they're going to, uh, the next step of the, of the architecture is have a space station that's there orbiting the moon mm-hmm. that they're going to build for this purpose, transfer people from the capsule to the space station, and then tra- transfer them to a lander system that takes them from the space station to the surface of the moon. Um, and then, and then back up to the, to the, uh, the space station when they're done uh, with their activities on the moon and then back to, back to earth. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because the, um, the, the space launch system is going to be, you know, about $2 billion per launch. So, mm-hmm. uh, so just an insane amount of money. Um, and then we're going to launch like the starship, which is a, another like sort of competing rocket that is not human rated or anything like that yet, but could be certainly by 2027, it could be. And, you know, and so we're going to transfer you know people from one one vehicle to another when the other one is is like much cheaper and better. Uh, you know, certainly mm-hmm. by 2027 it will be a lot better. And uh, and then on top of that, we're going to build a space station orbiting the moon, um, which you know the space station that orbits Earth is the most expensive structure humanity has ever built, 150 billion dollars. And uh, and so yeah, it's just it's it's a crazy crazy approach. You know, I've heard people say things like um, that maybe the um uh it's possible that the the uh lunar gateway the the space station that's orbiting the moon will get written out of the plan and they'll just have docking between the the capsule and starship and lunar orbit um but it it is it's a crazy way to do it and and sort of the, the 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 obvious way to do it would be keep working on starship the one that just blew up keep working on that until we're we're confident it can carry humans um, and then, uh, just put humans on there, take them to the moon land, um, and then come back all mm-hmm. in one vehicle. It would be a lot, it would make a lot more sense. It would. Re- so one of the things that is going to be required for, for the, on any of these missions is for, um, the starship vehicle to refuel on orbit. So they're going to, they're going to launch it to orbit and then it'll be the first time a vehicle has refueled or that kind of vehicle has refueled on orbit. Um, and so uh, that is still a technical challenge um, that will that will need what, to be met in any case. But why um, is that? Why is that necessary? I'm, I'm missing the. So, the way that you get more payload, uh, the way you get payload to a very far destination is you just burn more fuel, right? So you have mm-hmm. a higher higher fraction of the mass that you can carry is made up of fuel. Right. And so what this means is that you can have a, a rocket like the Saturn V. I think could take like a hundred. 30 tons or something like that to, to low earth orbit, but it could only, I think it could only take four tons to the moon because the remaining, the main remaining difference was, mm-hmm. was fuel. Um, and, and so, um, 
the way that SpaceX is solving this is they're saying, okay, no problem. We'll just, we'll, we won't t- take up all that space with fuel, but we'll just refuel. Um, okay. So when, on we, previous when, trips, when we get to orbit, they'll bring we'll, the we'll, they'll fuel send, up they'll first. Send, they'll send fuel tankers up yeah, to, okay, to okay, orbit and then dock yeah. in orbit and, and refuel. And so okay. this means that they'll be able to take 150 tons of payload, not just to the moon, but to Mars. Right. right, and so that's what they've that's what they've uh, designed it to be, and and Starship is going to be just so incredibly cost effective if if they if they achieve their targets of full reusability, uh, refuelability on orbit, and so on. Like it, it is going to be, it is going to open up space like never before. Mm. And do I mean is my intuition right that like the hard part is escaping Earth's getting away from earth, but then like to go from here to the Mars, you just kind of got to point direction and fire for a little bit. And then you oh, just man. get slingshotted. It's not like your engines are burning going to Mars the whole time. Uh, n- not the whole time. That's right. Uh, okay. And, and uh, the, the, there will be uh, additional thrust maneuvers and stuff when you get to Mars, because you've got to right. slow down. You got to slow down and get in the orbit. And, and doing. they don't have very much atmosphere. So you can't use atmospheric braking. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, there'll be, there'll be some fuel expenditure there, but that's right. I have to ask. So, you know, some people are going to say, what the heck? This is if they went to the moon in the late 60s. Why is this so hard? Like going to Mars? Sure. That's but why? why like, why are they hard? are they using different technology or like, did they forget what what's going on? Um, yeah, I think some of it is we've we've kind of forgotten some aspects of it. We don't have the muscles to do it. Um the meaning institution like the, the engineers who did it yeah. they're retired or dead and so like some of it you I, can't just look at a blueprint and, and do it if you didn't actually work on it is that what you mean uh, uh s- sort of i think it's also um i you know i think a, a lot of our, you know, a lot of our graduate students could do big chunks of of kind of what they did mm-hmm. on the uh, apollo missions right we've learned so much we've we've got the computational resources um, are so good that I, w- I wouldn't say that it's just like literal knowledge. It's it's more the, the institutional muscle memory and the, and, and just sort of the, the culture of aerospace. It really changed. Um, I think, I think um, I, I, an example I think about a lot is um, test pilots. Mm-hmm. So in the, you know, 1930s, 40s, 50s, we lost a lot of test pilots, <laughs> you know, uh, it, was re- it was really, um, you know, heartbreaking for their families and so on. But we, we went through tons and tons of test pilots on, in aviation, right? And today, we just don't do that. We can't, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's just not considered okay. And so we have to get to like a more mature design or, or have a... Um, or have a, a, a unmanned version uh, of it before we before we do that. And, it's, and so that's that. You sort of take take that that observation and then like apply it to space, right? Where, okay. where obviously you can be unmanned, you know, for initial rocket launch or something like that. But but it's just um, the safety culture has has gotten more intense. The um, just more generally the move fast and break things um, attitude that we had sort of early in the space program is is gone. And it's been, you know, 50 years, right, since we've been, since a human has been on the moon. So it, it's quite a lot, um, quite a long time. And I think mm-hmm. also, I think, like, the reason for going, um, you know, back then it was like a geopolitical project. 
and you know we don't have that exact reason anymore and so um we have to think about you know what what makes sense uh in terms of uh our presence there and is there is there something that is more than planting a flag that we should be doing Okay. Well, well, thanks. Uh, folks, my guest this week has been Eli Dorado. Eli, thank you for your time and your insights. I'm sure we got a lot out of it. Oh, well, th- thanks. It was uh, super fun for me. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.